Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade studying, researching, writing and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. Welcome to another episode of the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. Uh, today we are joined by an important guest to discuss uh, the United States foreign policy in Africa. Uh, our guest today is uh, Manuela Bouges. Uh, Manuela is a career diplomat uh, with nearly two decades uh, experience working with the U.S. Department of State. Uh, she is currently the first secretary of the Africa Watcher, the U.S. Embassy in London. Uh, Manola has also served at all the U.S. embassies across the world uh, and, and uh, U.S. stations across, uh, including African countries such as uh, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, um, and Mali. Uh, Manola, uh, we're very excited to have you on the podcast today. And uh, you've had a very uh, impressive and long uh, experience uh, in this in this job, and we do really look forward to to your insights into this into this job. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Michael. It's it's really wonderful to be with you this morning. Great, uh, brilliant. So I, I'll just ask uh, um, over the over the last uh, twenty something years since since nine eleven, uh, we've you know we've seen we've seen. U.S. Embassy kind of like evolved over over the years. So, but, but before we we talk about this trajectory, uh, I wanted to ask, what is the current U.S. policy um, in Africa relation to development and security? Thanks, Michael. Uh, you know, I think uh, broadly, the there's a recognition that in order to sustain security uh, in Africa, in African states you need to have open and democratic and, and prosperous states. Um, we've seen that there's a clear link between democracy and security. Um, so strong democracies are uh, more stable, they're um, less prone to conflict, and they're also more resilient to malign influence. Um, we've seen as well that democracies are able to leverage international partnerships, um, they're uh, better positioned to attract investment um, and to improve outcomes for their citizenry. So whether that's in education, in health, um, uh, in providing economic opportunity and in other areas where citizens uh, expect their governments to deliver for them. Um, so I think this is what Secretary Blinken 
uh, described when he uh, outlined our policy for Sub-Saharan Africa last year in, in Pretoria. Um, and this policy was uh, the result of broad consultation over time with African leaders, um, and that includes civil society leaders, to help identify those areas, um, those priorities where we would partner to address the challenges together. Um, so I'd love to just give a, a very brief overview of, of those um, four areas, because I think that really gets at um, uh, the, the question um, that you asked this morning. Um, so the, the first is working with African partners to foster openness. Um, and, and that means working with individuals, with communities, um, uh, and with states to define their own paths, uh, both domestically and in the international stage. Um, and that includes defending the rules of the international system. And in some cases also, of course, uh, modifying the international system to, uh, to work better for, for African nations. Um, this includes you know, providing pathway for, for ideas, uh, for investment, um, and also increasing connectivity uh, between communities and between states, um, which is you know, so critical to the global economy today. Um, the second area is, uh, is a recognition that democracies need to deliver for their people. Um, and so that's where the US um, is partnering with, uh, with states uh, to do better on this. Um, and I think it's, it's a recognition as well um, from the U.S. perspective that there is no perfect democracy. The U.S. has plenty of challenges as we have seen in recent years and, and continue to, to see today. Um, so I think it's kind of a humble partnership uh, to see where we can learn from one another, but also um, to invest in the areas that we know, um, we know matter. Um, the third area of, uh, of our uh, policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa is working with African states to recover from the COVID pandemic, which is um, uh, behind us in some ways, but not, not in others, um, and to continue to build economic growth. And this is where we, I think, really pull in um, uh, you know, a number of longstanding US programs uh, toward um, on the continent, um, as well as new ones. So things like uh, Feed the Feed the Future program, which has invest, invested $11 billion um, uh, to uh, help build uh, the capacity for food production on the continent, uh, to build up agribusiness. Um, uh, new programs like uh, President Biden and the G7's um, Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, um, or PGII. Uh, and this is aimed at mobilizing um, hundreds of billions of dollars for uh, investment in uh, infrastructure financing. Um, mm -hmm. Programs like uh, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, um, which has invested $100 billion since, uh, since it was created um, to build, the, you know, to build um, health capacity uh, in Africa. And a lot of that has uh, been two partners uh, in African states. Um, this program has saved 25 million lives. It's, it's one of the most, um, I think, effective programs the U.S. has ever implemented. Um, as well as continuing to engage um, the Young African Leaders Network, which now has 700,000 members um, and, and fosters, um, you know, creativity and ingenuity uh, to tackling future pro uh, problems. Um, and then the, the fourth and, and final piece of our um, policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa is to help um, uh, the clean energy transition. And this is a recognition that uh, Africa is the most vulnerable 
region uh, in the world to the effects of climate change. Um, and so we're investing $3 billion, much of which goes to Sub-Saharan Africa to, um, to adapt uh, and shape this transition. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the thing that I'd like to point out is that um, this, this partnership uh, is also a recognition that um, increasingly African states need to have uh, a, a platform um, on the world stage in order to help shape the, the global architecture. Um, that we put in place after after World War II, and so the U.S. has championed um, a, an African, a permanent African seat at the UN Security Council. Um, we've successfully lobbied for the African Union to be a permanent member of the G20 Group of Nations, um, and we've also advocated successfully for reform in the multilateral development banks um, and international mm -hmm. finance institutions to unlock um, more funding for African states to deal with um, things like climate change. And this is really a recognition from African leaders um, that, that, they, mm. uh, that this is needed. Um, uh, you know, we kind of brought all this together, I think, uh, in, um, in the US-Africa Leaders Summit last December, mm. uh, hosted in the United States, where um, we, uh, the United States announced $55 billion um, of investment across a number of sectors over a three-year period um, to, to together um, tackle these challenges. So I think, you know, uh, in summary, um, what really characterizes our approach to um, security development um, and kind of the long-term um, sustained peace is, is uh, this aspect of partnership um, so that we, we worked in tandem with African leaders uh, to to shape our our shared future. Oh, that's great. There, there's clearly a paradigmatic shift in in this U.S. policy of the past mm -hmm. till now. I think uh, at the sense of this current policy is partnership. That's the key word, and it, it seems uh, from what you've said, we can see that the U.S. has taken Africa to be uh, maybe a credible partner, uh, and then also putting Africa's interests uh, at the center of things. I, I think that's the shift from, from the policies of the past. What, 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 what is it that has altered or does influence this change in terms of seeing Africa as, as a credible partner? Uh, from what you said, you know, advocating for them to have a permanent seat in the, the UN Council, Security Council and the G20 membership, and also just putting them at, at the center of things. Uh, what, what has influence that change from previous policies? Well, I, I you know, I, I think it's more kind of continuity um, than than change. But I think one of one of the things um, that really is front and center of our policy is is the recognition of the central role that Africa will play in our global future. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there's been a, a lot of uh, I think anytime you um, uh, participate in, uh, you know, in, in a conference, um, uh, uh, that that talks about Africa's future, you know the the sort of the um, the importance of the the population simply, um, you know of of African states um, will be uh, you know will be increasingly um, a larger a larger share um, of our uh, of of our world, and so uh, I think we can't we can't ignore uh, any longer um, the 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 partnership the importance that African states will have um, in in our global architecture and our and in our shared um, in our our shared fate. 
great, great. You, you said something very um, interesting, uh, and uh, I wanted to take you up on that. It's the global uh, infrastructure uh, financing uh, aspect of it, where the United States is also like uh, funding infrastructure financing. And in some people have, when I go to conferences and then they talk about when they compare the United States or generally the West uh, approach, foreign aid approach in Africa and other places, compared to like China's uh, approach, for instance. People, let's say, in Africa, they, they, they draw a distinction between uh, a visible um, Chinese presence in terms of like maybe investment in infrastructure, maybe it's the railway, airport, and then they compare it to to traditional Western uh, aids and, you know, where you can really see uh, those. But me hearing this from you now, well, it's quite interesting to hear that. It's quite intriguing. It's, it's, what, is, what is in that calculation? Is, are we looking at, is there a feedback from what people have been saying in relation to what China is doing? Is that like, does that fit into that geopolitical, you know, competition and, and rivalry? Is that where this is coming from? Well, I think um, where it's coming from is, um, you know, I mentioned that our approach to uh, our policy towards sub-Saharan Africa was uh, a result of listening um, to African partners of, of what they need. Um, and one of those areas is uh, investment in infrastructure, you know, that where um, that uh, that used to be something traditionally that, um, you know, inter international partners uh, invested in. Um, in earlier decades, uh, it has uh, not been the case for some time, um, and and but it's still very much needed, particularly as um, you know you see uh, kind of shifts in um, populations from being you know rural to urban centers uh, to increasing populations. Um, uh, you know we need to we need to invest in, in, in infrastructure, um, and so figuring out innovative ways to do this. You know, uh, Western governments. Um, oftentimes aren't well positioned to finance it entirely themselves. And so it's figuring out how can we work with the, the private sector um, on some creative approaches to attracting investment. Um, and at the same time, you know, and when, when we talk about infrastructure, it's not just laying railroads, you know, or, or building roads, but it's also um, uh, interconnectivity in terms of communication. You know, how do we kind of increase that at the same time in order to really uh, improve, um, uh, you know, build up markets uh, for certain things and and, uh, and and strengthen and build economies. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, and, and if there's going to be, um, does that also tie into Africa's? Because Africa is also looking, I know African Union have got this um, uh, ambition, this 2063 ambition where they want to be able to take charge of control of, uh, you know, some of uh, their future in the in the continent, and one of the things is to is to build this continental trade to trade among themselves, and infrastructure and you know financing has always been um, a constraint. So it, it does this also? Is, is there logic? Is does this play into that logic of financing? Is is there specific financing that that goes into helping them in terms of you know this intra? Because most of the trade you see in Africa is always the majority of the trade is with is is external to Africa rather than you know within within the continent itself. So this global infrastructure financing scheme does it speak to that to the needs of um, the African continental free trade? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think broadly, um, you know, I, ideally we we would uh, get to a point where there is um, freer trade, uh, you know, re removal of barriers um, uh, between the states um, in Africa, uh, you know, for for um, for maximizing maximizing trade and the movement of goods and people. Um, you know, we very much support the African um, uh, continental, you know, free trade area. Um, and uh, our uh, our missions around the continent have long worked uh, to partner with African countries um, to improve phytosanitary standards, to break down, um, you know, barriers to trade. Um, so I think we very much leverage that existing um, that existing support uh, and investment that we've done um, uh, as we look at these new and innovative approaches as well to uh, to build out infrastructure um, going forward. Mm -hmm. In your first response, you you, you mentioned um, strong democracy and how that is relevant to to the prospect of economic development, prosperity for for the African uh, continent, but when we look at competition from places like China, who are aggressively, you know, expanding in Africa, or look at um, um, you know, Russia, for instance, or look at all the also the mid mid uh, uh, powers that are coming into Africa that care less about, you know, such uh, democratic values or human rights values. How how does um, the U.S. balance these uh, interests or these competitions from? other powers that care less about those values? Um, is there, does the US necessarily have to compromise um, in promoting those values? Or how are they able to balance those dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, as Secretary Blinken has said um, a number of times that it's, you know, it's every nation is free to choose um, with whom it partners. For the United States, it's not about competition with uh, Russia and China, um, and it's not about asking our partners uh, in Africa to choose between partnering with the United States or with Russia or China or, or any other country. Um, mm -hmm. You know, our, our view is that where relationships are, are beneficial, um, where they contribute to prosperity uh, for the country, um, where they build democratic institutions, you know, where you have um, the ability to develop uh, uh, ways to solve shared challenges. That's that's the ideal. Um, we we know that uh, the best outcomes for people um, anywhere, uh, you know, is uh, when governments are receptive to their needs and responsive to their voices. Um, you know, you asked specifically about human rights. Uh, and I'd say that that no one benefits when human rights, uh, respect for human rights is ignored. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we just have to look at the the Sahel um, and maybe Mali specifically, mm -hmm. where um, Russian paramilitary groups have been active, uh, including mm -hmm. Wagner. Um, the number of deaths uh, has increased mm -hmm. significantly, as have mm -hmm. the number of uh, internally displaced persons, of refugees, um, and ultimately, you know, if we're talking about security, this is this is bad for security. Um, you know, where uh, one thing that we've seen is that where Wagner um, is active, uh, you know, as Secretary Blinken has said, um, whenever we've seen them deploy, um, countries find themselves weaker, poorer, 
more insecure and less independent. And this is this is clear in Mali. Um, so, you know, I think I think what I'd say is that the the values of democracy and human rights are shared by African states um, and African citizens. It's they're not they're not Western values. Um, uh, they're they're universal values. Mm -hmm. I agree with you 100 percent. I agree 100 percent. The, the democracy and human rights are, are kind of like universal. Uh, and, and I'm currently doing a project that's looking at uh, the perception of democracy in, in, in Africa. And when you talk about Wagner Group, there, there is, you know, there's documented evidence of, you know, the, the carnage that they unleashed in these countries in Central African Republic, in Mali, like you mentioned, in, in, in other countries as well. But then again, do, do you not think, or do you think the West should uh, maybe inadvertently or you know, directly should take part of the blame because then we see where traditionally the Western states, you know, led by the US, whether in the Sahel, where you've got, the, you know, you've got uh, counterterrorism partnership with countries in the Sahel for four years. And then you've seen where people feel like over the years they've been unable to defeat insurgency in this place. And that has created incentive for um, rogue states or states such as Russian Wagner group to, to come in and then capitalize on it and say, listen, this guy is an all, you know, they've not done this in in, in, in Texas. If anything, insecurity has increased. And then to use that um, uh, kind of like narrative to, you know, to create disinformation and then um, take over uh, situations in those places. So how do you think, or what, what level of, um responsibility should the west and the u.s take in in creating those kind of like situations where uh, states such as uh, russia and you know rogue groups such as wagner group is taking advantage of well you know you mentioned uh, kind of a approach to to counterterrorism um assistance security assistance in the past i think i think one of the things that uh that we've done um uh you know, as we've looked at uh, the way that we have provided security assistance after, um, uh, you know, after after 9-11, for example, um, is a, a recognition that the investments that we provide um, in security, um, they, you know, whether those be training of security forces, um, exchanges, uh, um, you know, everything that we do to increase the capacity of security forces to address the threats of ter terrorism, um, those investments need to be matched by um, significant and meaningful investments in all of the institutions that underpin democracy uh, and um, and promote resilience. And so the the broader lesson um, that we've drawn is that when we overinvest in security um, and don't pay enough attention to governance and economic development, we can't sustain uh, even the the security gains that we may have experienced in the short term. So we we certainly see this in the Sahel, um, you know. So so one approach, um, kind of that we've that we've taken um, uh, as we've looked back at the way we've done security assistance is is to kind of think about how we can do prevention um, a little bit better, um, and how we can bring. Um, the the sort of the comprehensive tools of the U.S. government uh, to to bear um, on the the work that we do in partnership with with African states. Um, 
So we have, for example, um, uh, adopted uh, a new program called the, the Global Fragility Act, um, as well mm -hmm. as a strategy to uh, prevent conflict and promote stability. Um, and those mm -hmm. both have, uh, as I was mentioning, they both change the way that, we, um, that we're looking at how we do um, security assistance. So it's, you know, it's a whole of government um, approach um, that's tied to peace building, that's tied to inclusive economic development, um, and to good mm -hmm. governance. Um, and so mobilizing, um, uh, in Africa specifically, we're mobilizing uh, $85 million uh, for the coastal uh, countries in West Africa, for example, um, to align our uh, approach, um, you know, and other resources and programs uh, toward toward this. Um, the Department mm -hmm. of Defense is also aligning its increased security assistance um, within this new framework. Um, and, you know, and I think part of what we're trying to build in as well is a, is a learning component um, so that, uh, you know, sometimes our bureaucracy moves much more slowly than the situation on the ground. And so in recognition of that, um, it's kind of the ability to kind of uh, to to reflect, um, to monitor, evaluate and, and uh, adapt to changing circumstances. Um, you mentioned as well the, the issue of uh, um, of misinformation uh, on the ground, the, the role that Wagner plays. Um, I think that one of the things that we've seen is is that there is um, an instrumentalizing of some of these narratives, um, particularly the anti-Western narratives, by mm. uh, coup leaders um, and by uh, you know, Wagner uh, and other forces really to fuel their own ends um, for their own purposes. Mm. And so that's something that we um, that we very much need to um, to keep in mind uh, as we as we uh, assess what is what is happening um, and, and what the citizens uh, of these states are really calling for on the ground. Yeah, I, I agree with you again. Uh, I, and I appreciate the fact that you mentioned the the over investment in security and how that has inadvertently you know, created a situation where uh, where people can now exploit uh, that for their own personal gain. I, I had another guest on the show um, that was uh, looking more peace peace operations in Africa, peace stabilization and stuff. And he, he's, he mentioned similar stuff where peace operations can, whereas, you know, it, it can disincentivize uh, governments or people in elites in these African countries to address fundamental needs. So because when it's framed in that counterterrorism narrative and then there's that over-focus on, on security to the detriment of focusing on fundamental structural needs, uh, that, that, that creates that, that loophole. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, there's, there's a shift in, in approach um, towards creating a whole uh, society approach. But, but I, I think that's, again, it's, um, it's one that, that started from, uh, it was an Obama's uh, policy, uh, a whole society approach. I think it was, that was when we saw uh, the CVE program and where we, mm -hmm. where we saw that approach. But, but, but there was a brief disruption to that approach when uh, Trump came in. So between... Obama's and, and Biden's administration, I think, you know, there, there was a shift again from, you know, that approach that President Trump had a different kind of approach to, to, to Africa. How, how far did that set uh, this back, this approach back? Did it have any setback or 
or not? Well, um, you know, on Africa policy, I think one of the remarkable things um, in the United States is how much uh, bipartisan support there there has been for um, for the programs that we've had in Africa across administrations. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, because of the way that uh, funding cycles work, uh, because of how long, you know, um, uh, we have certain programs are funded for, you know, three years at a time, for example. And so there's there's actually remarkable continuity um, with respect to our um, to our policies in Africa, um, which is why we can point to to the program that I mentioned earlier, you know, on PEPFAR, um, which, you know, focused on health mm -hmm. and had that incredible um incredible investment and incredible, um, uh, remarkable achievements, uh, you know, in, in saving so many lives. Um, so I think there's, uh, I'd say there's more continuity than, than there's change. Um, but, but to, you know, emphasize there's, there's a, a willingness to go back and see, um, what hasn't worked so well and how we can improve upon that. And I think that's what this administration has been, um, incredibly committed to. Um, and, and you hear that from secretary Blinken, um, from, uh, you know, Assistant Secretary of State uh, for African Affairs, Molly Fee, um, and from President Biden, mm -hmm. of course, um, and other leaders mm -hmm. uh, and our engagements with um, with leaders in Africa, the visits to the continent. Um, so I think mm -hmm. I think um, I think this administration has really kind of elevated uh, our uh, our partnership, much of which have, has been longstanding, but but some of which um, is reflective mm -hmm. of, of the current needs. Yes, there's there's an, there's an improved uh, relationship, especially in the language, in in the kind of language used compared, you know, to the past administration in terms of how uh, Africa is being viewed. And one of the things we saw again, you know, if I go from uh, from the Obama administration down to Trump and down to this administration. So during the Obama administration, we saw where the Leveti, uh, uh, whatever was you say for Nigeria, for instance, where uh, the Obama administration didn't sell some uh military equipment to to the nigerian government because of an accusation of human rights violation but when president trump came you know they released some of those things but then we've seen perhaps we've seen an increased militarization from the state we've recently seen like a a, a drone uh like an accident maybe drone accident from the nigerian military where you know they've killed you know civilians uh, and we look at this and we look at Again, in terms of human rights and the constraint that the United States has in terms of like using the human rights framework to to determine whether they need to have such military assistance to to these countries, how do they um, how do they solve that conundrum between you know providing integrated assistance to these countries that are in my in my own notion using uh, using the terrorism framework indiscriminately because there's been some groups that have been prescribed that even you know it internationally and nationally you know they've condemned such prescription like in Nigeria look at the uh, uh IMN you look at the IPOP for instance that have been prescribed by a terrorist group and that creates uh, gives the government incentive to then clamp down on them heavily but this Groups do not necessarily, you know, qualify to be to be terrorist group. So, how does the United States balance that kind in terms of like providing civilian assistance to Nigeria to its partners such as Nigeria, and then, you know, protecting the human rights of of individuals? Um, 
Well, you mentioned the word conundrum. I, I think what I would say is that human rights is integral um, to security, especially um, you know when we've been talking about the kind of uh, long term. Uh, you know, what what does sustained security over the long term look like? Human rights has to be um, an integral part of that. Ultimately, you're talking about security for the people, and if they feel terrorized by um, you know a terrorist group or terrorized by their military, um, neither of those situations is you know results in um, in uh, a longstanding um, uh, peace and security. Um, so, you know, we we know also the lessons um, of uh, of 9/11. We've learned that um, abuses by security forces um, and human rights violations are one of the leading drivers of violent extremism. So, this you know, uh, violence begets more violence. Um, so. As the United States mm. looks toward partners um, to provide security assistance, um, you know, as we uh, engage in working with security forces to secure their borders and to um, to address the violent insurgencies they might be facing, um, at the center of that is really an emphasis on human rights, on professionalization of security mm. forces, um, mm. and also of civilian control uh, of the military. Um, so this is part and parcel of all of the training that we do to security forces on the ground. Um, and that's where um, we can only do this if we have um, if we have states that are committed toward uh, democratic governance. So, you know, in the places um, where we've seen military coups, you know, in, in, in West Africa and the Sahel, uh, you know, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, um, we have suspended both as a matter of policy and as a matter of law, the security assistance that we provide to the government. Um, we've also uh, suspended other forms of assistance that benefit the government directly um, because this is, uh, you know, this is, this is not in keeping with our, our values. And frankly, on a pragmatic level, um, it's, not, it's not building the sustainable peace that, and security that we're talking about. Um, so, for example, following the, the coup in Niger in July, we suspended about $140 million worth of uh, security assistance. Um, we also uh, sus suspended uh, more than $300 million um, in a Millennium Challenge Corporation compact with, with the country. Um, you know, if we turn to Burkina Faso, um, where there's, you know, huge you know, security um, and human rights crisis, we are urging the Burkina Bay mm. forces to adopt um, uh, an approach to security that uh, that centers um, civilian institutions. So uh, the police, mm. for example, um, mm. you know, and, and the the, re the rationale here being that if we adopt a very militarized approach, as we see in Mali, um, it's mm. it's bound to fail over the long term. Mm. So you know it it all comes back to the the sort of the comprehensive approach to to security that we've been uh, discussing today. Okay, that, that that's that's quite interesting. I've before before I come today to the last um, uh, question, if, even though we're talking about, even though we talk about. Um, you know this comprehensive approach. We we we've seen in the last maybe since ISIS has been defeated in the Middle East, we've seen like a you know a, a, a transition in Africa. Since Africa seems to be that epicenter of um, of um, 
you know, global terrorism, where you've seen several ISIS processes in, in different uh, regions or countries in Africa. How, how does the U.S. deal with these threats in, in the current climate? Um, and, and then again, I was going to link that up into, into the... Um, yeah, but first of all, yeah, go ahead. Answer that. Yeah, how does it yeah. deal with the threats? Sure. Um, you know, so I, I think, um, you know, we've used the word comprehensive a lot, um, but uh, but that really is uh, kind of sums up nicely um, the approach. In the U.S., you know, we talk um, uh, a lot sometimes about the three Ds, so development, uh, mm -hmm. diplomacy, and defense. Right. Um, and right. so that, you know, that's that's what we mean here when we, we say comprehensive. Um, you know, and uh, and I, I touched briefly on uh, some of how we've kind of modified uh, our or adapted um, our approach to preventing instability and conflict um, on the continent. Uh, the the Global Fragility Act um, and the strategy to promote stability and prevent conflict. Um, you know, they what they do is to um, emphasize. Uh, the economic and political drivers of instability. Um, so looking at things like uh, obstacles to women's participation um, in the economy uh, and, you know, political representation of marginalized groups, for example. Um, the idea yeah. of investing in these areas um, where we've we've done less work uh, in the past mm -hmm. is is that if if we do this investment up front, um, it uh, it pre hopefully in the future, um, you know, uh, will preclude the need for more costly military and humanitarian interventions over time. Um, so some of the work we're doing within these frameworks is to help cultivate um, relationships and dialogue between community leaders, uh, governments and security forces to reduce tensions in different areas. Um, we're also working with governments to um, uh, you know, lessen uh, the destabilizing impact of climate change. So we've seen in Africa that droughts um, are uh, have been longer uh, and more severe um, and more frequent. And that, of course, um, increases uh, the competition for scarce resources. Um, and so this, this sustained diplomacy um, has a lot of uh, diplomacy and, and, and other approach has a lot of uh, support from um, from Congress, uh, where you know um, uh, there's been a, a bipartisan agreement to invest uh, 20 million dollars a year um, over the next 10 years, uh, specifically for this, um, you know, for the Global Fragility Act and uh, and the strategy to promote stability and prevent conflict. Um, I also want to mention, you know, the incredibly important and central role that um, African organizations play um, increasingly uh, on uh, on the continent in um, in you know political negotiation in transitions back to democratic regime in thinking about uh, what a new architecture of of um, you know peacekeeping programs um, will look like mm -hmm. uh, so you know we have worked very closely with um, uh, the African Union um, uh, in West Africa, where we've we've talked about uh, some today, you know, the economic community of West African states is really front leading the charge um, in uh, mm. negotiating with the military regime mm. in Niger um, about how to 
how to reach a, a concrete and a, and a credible timeline um, to, you know, um, toward democracy. Um, and part of that is leveraging the U.S. assistance that I mentioned, you know, we suspended when there was a coup, um, is to say, you know, to, uh, to Niger that, uh, mm. you know, if, if there are credible um, steps being taken um, toward democracy, uh, we can re-engage um, again. And so very much working to continue to build economic growth um, and to continue to invest in some of these critical areas. Um, so, uh, so I think... I think that's really kind of the broad approach. Um, I, I, there are three things I think really summarize um, the, the, the U.S. Um, uh, you know, uh, U.S. partnership and, and approach and thinking uh, on, on um, development and security in Africa. Um, and the first, the first is what we touched on in the beginning, which is the, the critical links between uh, development, good governance, um, between resilient institutions um, in reaching peace and security that lasts. Um, the second is the leadership of African organizations in addressing these issues and laying the foundations for sustainable peace. Um, and then and then the third and last is, um, you know, that emphasis on partnership again, which is um, the, the U.S. partnership with African uh, leaders and communities is a recognition of our shared priorities and ultimately of the shared global uh, global fate. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that that I, I can see, I can see uh, a, an improvement in the past because when, when, when we started talking about you know integration of development and you know diplomacy and uh, and defense, and then in the UK, for instance, in the UK we had uh, similar stuff, and in Canada and similar stuff, and then we we had that conflict in uh, security stabilization fund in the UK as well. You know, initially when we were criticizing that, we we're looking at um in terms of the language it, it was more like our security we did this to prevent um we deal with the insecurity so that doesn't come to us but I, I can see clearly see a shift where this is the the needs or you know development of, of you know the african states have been you know integrated into the into the whole calculation but then again what, what i like that you mentioned is is you know looking at all that aspect that we're, that we're underinvested in, like diplomacy. And that again ties into our, our last guest. He talked about when he was comparing diplomacy and peace operation, he said, peace operation is just to create the, um, to be uh, just one of the options. The diplomacy is actually the key thing to, to be able to negotiate, have negotiated settlements, you know, have uh, diplomats going in there to do the actual work. That piece of piece of piece of piece of sometimes it's very necessary to create a, a, a short-term stability where you can then invest development and other things. And me hearing you say this, you know, it shows me that I think we're thinking in the right direction and, and going towards uh, the right direction to how to solve uh, these issues. Uh, but I, I, will, I will come to the last questions. I will not delay you further. When you started, you you, you mentioned you said something very important. You said there is no perfect democracy. Uh, anyway, and then you also say something that democracy and human rights are not the exclusive rights of any country. They're not particularly Western. So there's this project I'm working on looking at the prospect of all the, you know, the, the idea of an African democracy, African style democracy. You know, do we have, should we think about that? What would that look like? So you saying that, I was quite interested. I want to ask you, do you think 
liberal democracy. So, so if we look at um, how the United States promotes, you know, maybe election, what's like, for instance, in Nigeria, I'm quite well, is molded on the American system. And you look at multi-party democracy. And then you look at these places, they, they, you know, we have violence that are associated with elect elections. And you see elections that are not free and fair. I like like you mentioned in the past, the United States as well has had its own. We saw during the last election, we, 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 you know, with the, that brought in um, President Biden. But in Africa, it's quite prevalent where people are saying, "Is this really working? Is is you know, is elections working for us? Or should we be looking at different, you know, approaches? So should the United States be supporting in Africa to develop a, a democratic system that that is quite unique to them and also that helps?" Uh, or should they? Because I've taken out, I've got us some perceptions, some survey, and people are saying, "Oh, this democracy is alien to us." You know, we should go back to is is there anything like that? You know, what would that look like if America was, if DSC was to support something like that? Yeah, I I think uh, you know ultimately, what you mean, what we mean by democracy is creating space for um, for all of the groups in society. Uh, and all individuals to be able to have a voice in shaping mm -hmm. uh, the government that then has an impact on their lives. And in different mm -hmm. places, this is going to look different, you know, but um, but I think some of the commonalities are, you know, and I think it's a very interesting project, the one that you described is to take a look at and see um, mm -hmm. how can how can we do better in partnership at, at um, elevating some of these voices that have been um, marginalized in the past, uh, you know, whether that's mm. specific communities uh, or specific uh, identities. Um, and how do we how do we create a space for that um, uh, to have then a, a political political debate and, and political conflict uh, to be worked out in that civic space and not then, mm. um, you know, erupt into violence. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, Secretary Blinken um, mentioned when he uh, delivered uh, our, our uh, approach to Sub-Saharan Africa in Pretoria last year, um, it is that there will be different models uh, in different places that, that, um, that work, you know, for, for those. Um, uh, better than, there's no one size fits all model, uh, essentially, of democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and so when we kind of look at um, only at elections as, as the marker of whether there is a democracy or not, I think that's, um, we're learning those lessons that that's, that that's certainly not um, the only thing. We have to look at uh, everything mm -hmm. that underpins that, um, that then results in the ability of people to feel like their voices have been heard um, and they have a real um, ability to hold their governments accountable. So, um, so I, I look forward to hearing the results of your um, of your work. Actually, I think I think this will um, feed very nicely into some of the thinking that we're doing um, in uh, in the United States as well as 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 we partner with African governments. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Manuela, for this interesting conversation. I'm so grateful your your for your deep insights and you know for you know letting us letting our listeners and our viewers know you know understand the, the u.s um, foreign policy in africa and, and and i've learned a lot myself you know seeing how seeing the shifts and the trajectory of you know and the lessons we've learned and also the ability to accept that 
you know, in the past, we, we could have done it a lot better in this way. And then also, you know, then adapting the, the, the changes in, in, in moving forward. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate um, for this um, exciting conversation. And um, hopefully we'll bring you up here again. Thank, thank you so you much, much. Really thank you it's been a pleasure same here yeah thank you once again for tuning in to today's um, episode uh with um Myself, your host, and Dr. Manuela Bujes, who has provided us with a very deep insight into uh, U.S. Uh, foreign um, policy in Africa. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode. Bye for now.